you would, open your Bible. Open up to Exodus chapter number 32. If you remember last week, we spoke about, um, about the, the breaking out of the children of Israel as Moses goes up into the cloud. Remember, we spoke about how Moses was swallowed up into the cloud as he goes up into Mount Sinai. And now the children of Israel see Moses gone and they just go to about 38, 39 days and then they just lose their mind and they invoke of Aaron to make them God that they can actually see, touch, and feel, have tangible attachment to and worship to. Well, we know that the Bible tells us that our God is of spirit, that He is not something we can touch and feel. He's not flesh and bone, but Jesus is skin and bone, but He's not here. So we walk by faith. The children of Israel gave up their faith. They gave in. They needed something more than a word. They needed more than the thunderings of God. If you remember just 38 days before, God came down and presented presented himself before to the children of Israel in a cloud and he thundered with a lightnings and threatenings and gave them the law. And then 38 days later, they turn around and they break out against God, breaking his commandments, forgetting God and even adding to the worship of God, going against the, the calling of God. Many times we do that thing whenever we come to church and we serve God and we're on fire for God and then we fall. And sometimes we deliberately dive into sin because that's the things about Christians. We deliberately sin. We're not like the pagan who doesn't know any better. But we'll get more to that in Romans chapter number 1 as God freely shows His power and His glory on display because of creation. But the Christian has an intimate walk with God and then we choose sin over God when we sin. The reason I tell you that is because whenever you sin again or you're contemplating sin, before you gossip, before you lust, or before you covet, before you do anything that's a, a sin of the heart or the hands or the feet, before you do it, I want you to contemplate and say, I want to remind myself that the preacher said, when we sin, what we're saying is this sin is better than Jesus. I'd rather have this lust. I'd rather have this. I'd rather lie because it's better than Jesus. I, I'd rather have this uh, gluttony because it's better than Jesus. I'd rather dishonor the Sabbath day. I'd rather dishonor my parents because it's better than Jesus. You might sit here and say, that's foolish. That, is, that cannot be true. But that's the insanity of sin. Sin is deceitful. It causes your heart to get hard as you read in Hebrews chapter number 3 verse 13. The deceitfulness of sin. But we see the deceitfulness of sin has run amok in the children of Israel. And before we fold our arms and say, look at what they did. Oh, that is horrible. They had a direct connection with God. But don't you? Don't you hold His oracles in your hand right now? Does He not dwell within you? Does not the Holy Spirit possess you? Are you not gods and yet we still sin? So before we cast any stones at the Israelites, let us, let us reflect ourselves and see how foolish we are. Look quickly at verse number 7. God God calls out to Moses, go down on the 38th or 39th day. Go down for the people have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. That their hearts have corrupted themselves. Left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves and everyone around us. In verse number 8, they have turned aside quickly out of, out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, Are these your gods, O Israel, who have brought thee out of Israel? In verse 9, Moses said, God, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. It is a stiff-necked people. 
Now therefore leave me alone, and my wrath will burn hot against them that I might consume them, in order that I may make you a great nation. We spoke about last week how Moses was the meekest man. I hear people say, well, Moses himself wrote that. Of course he's going to write that. But this is the very words of God. If God commanded through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for Moses to write that he was meek, then he was meek. We also read in the Old Testament that, uh, that Noah was the, righteous, the most righteous man, uh, that God called him righteous. And if God called him righteous, then he was righteous. There's no doubt about it. But here Moses could have said, okay, God, you're right. Let's, let's start over with me. But no, God, God and Moses have a conversation. But we call this an advocate, someone who comes between God and they discuss things. And whenever someone's discussing God, with, discussing you to God, don't you want an advocate? Someone who will say, no, let me defend them. Let me defend, let them be, let me, let me defend them. Let me be a defender to them. Let me be a rescuer to them. Not an accuser, which is what we all have. We have an accuser of the brethren. So we need a good defense attorney here. Moses steps in almost like an image of Jesus defending the children of Israel. Verse 11, Moses implored to the, the Lord of his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land with great power and with a mighty hand? Before that, verse number 8, God says the people that Moses brought out. But now Moses says, no, I didn't bring them out. You brought them out. Moses humbles himself before God and says, God, I didn't bring these people out. That was you. A home that's built is only built by a humble leader. If you're in a household and you're the leader of the household, if you're a single woman or you're a married couple or you're a single man, it's built on humility. Humbling yourself before God and say, God, it's not me who, who did all this. It was you. Here Moses humbles himself for the whole nation. And it says, God, it was you who brought them out of Israel. It was your power and your mighty hand. And why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them off the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Can you hear in verse 12, almost Jesus speaking over you. Turn from your anger, O Lord, as Jesus goes to the cross for sinners like you and me. Relent in your anger and your wrath towards people like the preacher or the people on the back row, the front row, and the middle rows. That Jesus intervenes and cries out, Oh Lord, relent from your wrath poured out on me. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then Moses brings up people who God had a covenant with. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, who was Jacob, your servants whom you have swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the heavens, stars of heavens. In this land will you have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Here Moses says, God, if you destroy these people, your name is on the line. I want that to resonate with you, Christian. If you go to hell... It's your own fault. But if you go to heaven, it's because God saves you and keeps you and holds you. His name's on the line. If there's ever a day where you doubt you're going to go to heaven and you've repented of your sins, you trusted in Him, His name's on the line. Here we see He calls 
God's remembrance. Not that God needed to remember. He might have been testing that Moses. He, it was written to help me, to remind me that God's made a covenant with sinners like me. Because if he was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, and, he's, and Jacob, he's even more faithful according to Hebrews chapter number 3 because of Jesus who's a better covenant. The only reason Jesus is blessing me is because, only the reason God is blessing me is because of Jesus. Let it bring it to remembrance. He tells him, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And verse 14, and the Lord relented from disaster that he had spoken of bringing his people. In verse 14, you might have a King James, and it might say he repented. Repentant means to change, so that's a bad translation. I'm just being honest. If you open up your ESV, it says that he relented. He's going to do something, but he decided to do it this way is what that means. God will do something. He always does something. Many times you might pray and say, I feel like God ain't doing anything. Many times that's him doing something, not doing anything. But in this situation, he decided to relent from disaster and he went another way and it's called grace he could have destroyed and wiped out these people but he showed mercy thank God for grace now we see in verse 15 where Moses will see face to face the sin that took place in the camp in verse 15 then Moses went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands the tablets that were written on both sides on the front and on the back that were written we see in verse 15, these were the very written words of God. He wrote them. If you sing the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, they show a scene where uh, the, the tablet is being cut out of the side of the mountain and the writing is taking place there. You can use that for your imagination. But either way, he's holding two tablets written front and back on all the instruction that he received from God. He goes down from the mountain with the two tablets in his hands. In verse 16, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. We see here that these children of Israel, it ain't going to do them no good with those tablets in Moses' hands. They've already broken God's laws. I see a flaw here in this redemptive story. If the story is God's going to send law to save us, We've already blown it as a church and as a people. For the law is given to Moses while Moses is on top of the mountain. The people are sinning. So the law can't save anybody. Moses is coming down from the top of the mountain with the law in his hands. There has to be some kind of transaction that gets the laws out of Moses' hands and puts it into his hearts of the people who trust in God. Do you see the situation? You can be here at church and your heart be somewhere else. Your body physically be, can be here, but it might be at home in your lazy boy. It might be at the job at the job site still. It might be wandering in some deer stand or thinking about tomorrow. Your heart could be somewhere else. And the law is written and is held in Moses' hand that we need a, the law to grip our hearts. Much like my two little boys. I, I, I have an influence on them. When they're around daddy, they do good. They do good. But once daddy's not in the room, they might jump on the bed. Because the influence has moved away. But once there's a love that's captured their heart, they don't want to do anything but dishonor daddy. But they're, they're human beings just like me and you. Do you see the difference between influence and capturing the heart? The children of Israel, their hearts are still in Egypt because they're worshiping idols. And here Moses comes from the top of the mountain with the laws in his hands and it's going to do them no good. Even though these are holy texts, they were written by the very hands of God. There was no inspired authors right here. It was the very words of God. And it's going to do nobody no good because they've broken all the laws already. 
Verse 17, then Joshua, you got to remember Joshua, this is Moses' right-hand man. He was halfway up the mountain because he met with Moses halfway up the mountain and Moses went all the way to the top. And here Joshua for 39 days, 40 days at this point, had waited on the side of the mountain for his master to come down. And he hears him and Moses and them meet along the way in verse 17 and Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's a war in the camp. Joshua being trained for war, he knew there was a ruckus as they're high on the mountain. He knew at the foot of the mountain, that don't sound right. They should be at peace. He hears a noise of war, but in verse 18, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the cry of defeat or defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Verse 18, he heard worship. They were singing worship. Worship songs. Songs at the top of their lungs where they belt it out. There are some churches you can attend. There are even some in our area that the music is so loud. When you stand and sit on the front row, the beat of the sound will hit in your chest. There are some people who told me they have pacemakers and they can't even attend those churches because they turn the music up so loud. Louder don't mean better. Let me just go ahead and say. That's called worshipment. We've talked about that, where it's a concert just to evoke the emotions. Those emotions are gone before you get into your car. We need something more, more than just the law in our hands, and more than the emotional goosebumps that run down our backs. Here, the children of Israel have everything at their disposal. They have the very words and the laws of God, and they have good worship music. But here, they're still worshiping idols. They got the formula for the perfect church. They got a good preacher, Moses. Got a good co-pastor, Aaron. They got good, they got the word of God and good music, good craftsmen. They got everything and yet here they find themselves in sin. It's the sound of singing I hear in verse 19 and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Moses! Y'all remember when Moses got mad back in Egypt and he killed that Egyptian? Sometimes when people who deal with stuff when they're 40 still deal with it when they're 80. Anger. Still dealing with the same issues. He's mad, but this time it's for the right reasons. He's mad at sin. Did y'all know it's okay to get mad at sin? Did y'all know it's alright to get mad at abortion? Did y'all know it's okay to get mad at whorehouses and pimps and hustlers? Did you, did you know it's okay to have it in a righteous anger about lives being destroyed because of meth and pills? Or you, you know it's okay to be mad at sin. Not to the point where you're killing people or anything. I'm just telling you, you cry out to God and your heart is broken because you see the effects of sin in a society. Are you, are you sure? Are you, you, you know it's okay to be mad at a nip house where people have moonshine or a, a meth house where they go and just shoot up and lay in the corner for a couple of weeks because that's somebody's daddy, somebody's son, somebody's daughter laying in the corner on a dirty mattress who's getting high for weeks on end. It's okay. It's all right to get mad at sin. Here Moses, he's burning with an anchor now. He took the tablets of God and smashed them because at this point, they're going to do no good for the children of Israel in the grip of sin. Something else must take place. 
Now you might say that he walked into, you might think in your imagination, he walked into a worship service and everybody's holding hands and singing Kumbaya. No, at this point there's all kinds of orgies going on. There's all kinds of filth and debauchery going on at this point. All kinds of sin that even Paul says it's not even good to even say. They're dancing around the calf and worshiping. And Moses' anger grew hot. What gets under the collar of a preacher? Hearing that somebody can earn their salvation. That burns me. You cannot earn your salvation. What burns me up is you hear phrases like uh, uh, the walking in the anointing that Jesus walked or being on equal ground with Jesus. There ain't nobody equal with Jesus. He's in a class all by himself. What burns up a preacher saying that uh, I'm going to heaven because I donated this table or I donated those chandeliers and I've got my place into heaven. I can come on CEOs Christian, uh, Christmas or, or Easter or some uh, a special holiday once a year. and I believe God's going to, He's going to look favorably upon me because of my good works. No, no. He, he will turn up hell a little hotter because of your good works. In spite of you, Jesus died for sinners. Here Moses threw the tablets from his hands at the foot of the mountain. The mountain probably was still shaking from the presence of God. And here are these fools dancing around a calf, worshiping it and calling it its God. They could probably hear the thunderings from the top of the mountain, but still they still sin. Yeah, we laugh at that and we say, man, no Israelites are so dumb. But how many... Good preachers stand in pulpits on Sunday mornings and preach the gospel unadulterated and preach on the convicting power word of God and people still sit in the pew and sin. Even when the pulpit thunders, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and yet they still dance around their golden calves and don't repent of their sins. Hell could not be hotter for those people. Here Moses cast the law to the side of the mountain. And now in the next few verses, they move very quickly, but we're going to unpack them together. In verse 20, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water to make the people of Israel drink it. Poor Moses was bad. He was mean, won't he? He made them basically drink glitter water, basically. He wanted them to ingest the very thing. He wanted them to feel that thing. After they drank it, they're going to feel it when they go to the bathroom. It's going to burn. It's going to hurt. It's going to run through their kidneys. They're going to expel that powder whenever they drank it. The thing of it is that many of us, whenever we come to Jesus and we want Him to save us from our sins, Jesus don't save us from the, uh, the result of our sins. For an example, maybe you've been promiscuous your entire life and then you come to Jesus at a, a late age. You still have to deal with the, the, the chlamydia and all kinds of different diseases your body will have. You might come to Jesus after you had years and years of alcoholism, but you still got to deal with the cirrhosis of the liver or whatever has damaged your body. You might come to Jesus after years of lying and ruined families and still have to deal with that dysfunctional family years later. Jesus saves you from your sins, but not many times He don't save you from the result of all those sins. All those things are wiped away in the new world, in the new, in the new age when God wipes away every tear. But we see here that Moses ground up this calf and he burned it with fire. Notice he had to melt it down and then whenever they're in, 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 in the nice little, uh, little pools, he was able to grind it up into powder. And the children of Israel drank from him. Talk about bitter water. 
Wasn't it just before this that they walked beside pools that Moses spoke to a rock and out came sweet water? And because of their foolishness, that water turned bitter because of the grinding of the calf. Don't, let's be honest. Any kind of mistakes that happen in our life is because of what we do. We make the water bitter. If I could just get out the way and quit messing things up. John Calvin says, anything that's good in me is a credit to God and God alone as I always mess things up. Amen. You don't hear that much preaching in other churches. You, you hear how, how squishy and how wonderful you are and you're God's favorite. And that's possibly true. You had to be uh, at least favorable to God for Him to save you. But it's only by grace you're saved. We don't need to put our humanity and who we are up on a pedestal. That place is for Jesus and Him alone. Amen. So the bitterness of the water that came from the rock now reminds the children of Israel that you failed God. But no, there's some in the camp that don't want to bend to Moses. Around 3,000 men who decided, I don't want to follow Moses. I like this calf idea. I can't believe that Moses ground up this calf. They're going around sleeping and doing riding within this population of about 1.5 million people. And Moses said to Aaron, what did the people do to you? that you have brought such great sin upon them. Aaron led these people into sin. Now you got to remember, at the top of the mountain, God was telling Moses what he wanted Aaron to do and what he wanted him to be like. I want you to fashion this kind of sash and this chest plate. I want you to put this turban of crown on his head. I want you to anoint him with oil while he's down in the valley, on, at the bottom of the mountain, leading the people into sin, being a weak leader. The new high priest is going to blow it before he even gets anointed. This new high priest is going to mess up so bad. He's going to lead the children of Israel into idolatry. And here Moses, the leader of the nation, stands before the new high priest, the second in the command, the guy who's supposed to take care of all the religious ceremonies. He looks at him and says, What did these people do that was so evil that caused you to leave them in such a great sin? You led them, Aaron. You did this. What did they do to you? For you to damn them in such a way. You might say, what a, why? Aaron just caved in. He gave the people what they want. Many times the hearts of the people is to run after things of the world. Aaron should have stood firm on the promises of God. He stood before Pharaoh and spoke for Moses and for God. But then when he was looking in the face of his friends and family, he caves in. Many times if we look at our biblical heroes, we see they're flawed. Moses had a temper problem. He was angry. Later on, he's going to punch a rock and God's going to say, you can't go into the new, new, the new promised land because of your anger issues. Aaron here, he folds like a cheap lawn chair in the face of his family and a nation. He had no backbone. He fell in private and then he fell publicly. As we examine these people from Adam, Seth, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all had flaws. And the reason is because every hero we read about, and even in our history, and even in our denomination, and even in this church, people we look up to have flaws. We look at them and say, they're not the hero of the story. The more you get to know me, the probably the less you'll like me. That's fine, because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Amen. We're not to hold Moses up in high regard and say he's our Savior, nor Aaron. We don't look at Aaron and say, look at Aaron, he's such a wimp. He's got a spineless jelly be jellyfish backbone. He's got a wishbone where his backbone should be. He's a wimp. 
We can't say that about Him because we're just as bad. We can't get uh, critical of Moses because we have tempers too. So here Moses says, What did these people do to you to cause them to do a great evil? Aaron, you should have led them better. Aaron, I left you in charge. You caused these people to break out against God. That's why every minister and preacher, when he stands in the pulpit, he's not going to have Moses come to him after each service and say, well, that was a good sermon. You should have did this better or that better. No, he has to stand before God one day and give an account of what he preaches. Yes, that's why we got such good deacons. Let's be honest. They are to guard and look over the doctrine that I preach and say, hey man, that, that ain't exactly right. Now, right here, this is what this says. You, you can't go off the rails and make this thing up. You have to stick to the Scripture. Our deacons are here to guard not only the doors to the church, but the door to the church to make sure we're preaching the right Scripture. To rightly divide the word of Scripture is what Timothy has been told by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And now Aaron, here's what Aaron says. You think Aaron would make up something good, but here's what Aaron said. Verse 22, And Aaron said, Let not your anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they set their own mind on evil. Verse 23, 4, They said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who you brought up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he came, what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who, can, who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That's ridiculous. That's laughable. We can laugh at that. But how sorry is our excuses when we sin? Lord, she just walked in. I can't. She's right there, God. Lord, look at how they're living. I gotta say something to somebody, not to them. Though I gotta gossip over here. I, you just put this thing in front of me. It just jumped out of the fire, God. That's how foolish we sound. Before we laugh too hard at Aaron, that is sad. That's much like our children. Did you eat the cookie in the cookie jar and it got chocolate all over their face? No, Daddy. We know they did. But Aaron says no different than any of us making excuses. Goes all the way back to Adam. Lord, it was the woman you gave me. Y'all remember that his sin? He said, Lord, you gave me this woman. It's on you and her whenever we don't take responsibility for our sins. you got to remember earlier in the chapter, whenever he graved, he didn't mention that. Whenever they formed the calf, he was out there engraving it to make it look more like a calf. It didn't just pop out of the fire. That's not how it works. Our hearts are idol factories, always finding something to worship. And here Aaron said, it just came out of the fire. Verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? He didn't mumble that, but I want to preserve my voice. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Inside the camp, it was chaos, anarchy. Children of Israel destroying each other, burning in lust, Sleeping around, destroying their whole society. Sin had run amok. And now Moses stands at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? 
In verse 26, And Moses stood at the gate of the camp, who's on the Lord's side, Come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and kill of you, kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now see, in verse 27, you might say, man, that's harsh. That God's sending Moses there to purge the camp of the sinner. If God purged the church of the sinner today, there wouldn't be anybody left, let alone somebody preaching. But we might look at that and say, man, that's a little harsh, God. Why would you, why would you do that? Why would you tell the Levites to rise up and just kill throughout the camp? I'm not going to defend God right now. Because I can't defend us. We all deserve hell. And I heard it said that if the consequences of sin were instant, there'd be a lot less sinning. There wouldn't be nobody here tonight. God has prolonged grace and mercy. He has allowed you to have another day to find repentance. Another day, another sunrise and sunset where He's beckoning you to repent of your sins. He doesn't have a Levite coming here with a sword and guts you right where you sit. It's grace and mercy. Truly, He should have slayed all of them, but we only see 3,000. These are the 3,000 in the streets that are rioting and causing a ruckus and trying to overthrow Moses. These are those who took up arms and trying to cause a military coup within the camp. There's 3,000, but outside of those 3,000, there are others who are privately in their homes, in their tents, and they don't repent. They're still rebellious against Moses and God, and they don't want to honor God, but God gets them too. The thing about it is God always gets His man or His woman. Always. Either that about be good or bad. But let's continue. So He tells them to strap on their swords and they gather around Him. Put on your sword in verse 27. Go out to the camp and kill your brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And all that day, around 3,000 men of the people fell. 3,000 men rather go to combat and fight than to serve God. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son or his brother, so he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. You know, we've been talking on Sundays about the sacrifices of being a Christian. In America, it's not that great. It's not, it doesn't cost you that much to be a Christian. It costs you an hour maybe on Sunday and maybe midweek sometimes and a little bit of gas to be here. And we think that's what it means to be a Christian. But in other countries, they're being killed. They're even gathering up Christians within China outside this coronavirus. If they find out you're a Christian, they'll put you in a consecration camp and they'll hold you and they'll harvest your organs while you're alive. That's what it means to be a Christian in China. But we don't want to come to church if it rains. Here, we see that God calls Moses to cut out the sin out of the camp. And we think that's a little vicious and we think it's a little unfair. We might even say God's a tyrant. It's because our rebellious hearts read this from our point of view, from the eyes of rebellion, from the eyes of wickedness. We say that. That's not even right. That God, you're too holy. Think about what you're saying as you read this. Moses is having his guys, the Levites, run in there and kill their own brothers, their own sons for God's holy name. Because God is that holy that somebody has to die. In fact, that's what happened, if y'all remember. God is that holy that somebody had to die. 
Jesus had to die. God is that holy that somebody has to die. But it was you and me who did the sinning. Oh man, are you getting what I'm saying? It was me and you who sinned against the Holy God. Instead of slaying you right where you stand with the sword of a priest or a Levite, he sends a high priest in the name of Jesus and extends an olive branch to you and me. And he takes our place. He's our substitute. Do you see how the law that's thrown against the mountain can't save us at this point? All it does is condemn us. The Israelites have broken God's laws and He sends out His boys and His men to kill those who are the sinners. That's just the 3,000. If we continue here, let's look at verse, verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. God also got the ones that weren't into street fighting. God killed them because of their sin. Do you not understand that you should have not woke up this morning because of sin, but only because of mercy and grace? There's a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is whenever He holds back what you deserve. He holds it back. Mercy. But grace is when He gives you something you don't deserve. Goodness and kindness. Forgiveness and love and peace and joy unspeakable. He gives you those things instead of what you do. So you see that mercy and grace, they are something that are many times mingled together, even in the book of Psalms, that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You read that, right? You've read that. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Do you know why it's written like that? That you don't follow goodness and mercy? That goodness and mercy is not in front of you? That it's behind you? Here's why. So when you stand before Jesus, goodness and mercy is behind you, cleaning up all your mess. Everything you did, all the stuff you did wrong, cleaning it up. We got babies. Sherry has gone from one room to the other just cleaning up stuff. They're just little tornadoes, just tearing up everything. And she'll come behind, just clean up. Goodness and mercy follow you. So why are you thinking about what you did yesterday? Goodness and mercy. Why are you worried about 10 years ago? Goodness and mercy. Somebody needs to hear this. Why are you worried about a couple hours ago? Goodness and mercy. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. For the law cannot save you. You can dot all the I's and make all the T's and put all the check marks and believe that your performance is what saves you, but it doesn't. It simply condemns you because God has given us something better than performance. It's grace and His name is Jesus. Surely goodness and mercy follow you. It cleans up all your mess. And when you stand before Jesus, He's able to present you spotless without spot or wrinkle because of the blood of Jesus has washed away all sins. He has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west when He should have slain you where you stand. He holds back wrath with mercy and gives you grace so you have peace. Boy, that's good right there. Y'all know it. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you tonight as we study your word. We didn't even get to the part where 